1: Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by the illustrious Christopher Cusack from a from a safe distance. Does illustrious mean
2: I have luster? Is that where that word comes from? Yes. So I'm um,
1: glowing. No, luster as in... Uh, Sheen. Shiny. You said I'm, I'm sheeny, I'm shiny, like sweaty. No, illustrious usually means like it's, I think... It's right there in the center of my head. The word, and I get fucking uh, regal. Regal is is kind of what I mean, but it's not what I mean. But yeah, like that. No, but yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, no. I get that. That's the usage,
2: but it it has luster in it. I'm just worried that you're calling me like a backhanded sort of snide, sort of Chris. You look a bit shiny, a bit spotty, a bit greasy. I think it's because of my Italian heritage. I think you're calling me a greasy Italian, Fruccio, You're gonna take that. Yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna let. You're gonna let your country be defamed by this Scottish
3: rascal? It's okay. It's okay. We we, we always get uh, we get a lot of, of these things. A
2: lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did give them fascism in return, though. So
3: <laughs> but you know what? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from like sh- it's it's truly coming from shining in a good way, like you know something that's it's like sparkling, you know, illustrious mm-hmm. in in Latin. I think it comes from that, like being sparkling, something like. Sh- shining you know in the in the sun under the sun or being diffusing light you know being a, a very a, in a positive way obviously in a positive sense
2: well, I do wear that glittery makeup quite glittery like, maybe either
1: like glittering <laughs> like like glittering you know that's something that's glittering just to clarify it, it means well known respected and admired for his past achievements Chris so <laughs> oh, get, geez, a, so get right up here. <laughs> steady on
2: Ferruccio, um, how do you say cat in Italian Gatto. Well, El uh, Gatto is out of the bag. Fruccio is with us this week. <laughs> uh, and it's his choice. Um, you you may recall the last time Fruccio was with us, he made mention of a band called That Petrol Emotion. And we said, you know what, big man, you can come back on and give us the chat about that. And that's exactly what's going to happen this week.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about the band that it's. Pretty much unsung,
2: I think. Absolutely. You know, it's a it's a name that has just always been in the periphery. I, I, you know, It's a name you see, you go into like vinyl bins, you go into record stores, and sometimes you'll come across it. And it's one of those names that I'm like, I don't have any reference here, I don't know who this is. I don't know, I get the feeling I might like it, but you don't really take the chance. So it was nice to have that kind of cleared up. And it's, it was interesting. There's, there's some angles to this band that I'd like to explore a wee bit. Before we do that, Mark... You're in charge of admin at this podcast.
1: I am, yeah. Uh, So I want to give some shout-outs to some people who are illustrious uh, to us (laughs) for giving us their hard-earned dollar and and sweaty (laughs) and shiny. Big thanks to uh, Kirsty Dickinson, who has upped her pledge to join the Digital Record Club. Thank you very much. Might I add she took a, a bucket of Chris. Good choice, Kirsty. Oh, very nice. I thought, I mean, she did send us her uh, her, her three top albums before, and, and after seeing them, I was like, just going to go with Chris. So <laughs> she did. Uh, uh, Mr. Scott Walker, thank you as well. Not not the Scott Walker, obviously. Well, he is the Scott not, Walker not now. The, yeah, he is the Scott Walker <laughs> now, I suppose. By default. And Jenny, just no surname, just Jenny. So thank you also for joining us. We appreciate that. Well, and if, if you don't know what we're talking about when it comes to digital record clubs and the like, then we have a, a brand new Patreon subscription system. Uh, Chris, you want to tell them all about it?
2: Yeah, uh, we revised this and thought we can use our uh, status as illustrious people Mm -hmm. within the musical community to try and spread the love a bit with some of the albums that we come across that are a bit unsung. So what we've been doing is we've been kind of bulk buying from independent bands, independent labels, some bands that aren't together anymore, but the members are doing new things so they could use the investment. And we get great records that are for whatever reason, hard to find. And I mean, these may be records that never even got full-scale releases and we've been lucky enough to hear them. So we're always open to suggestions as well. Uh, But we get them off them and then as part of your subscription, you can either get digital or you can get actual real-life vinyl in the post anywhere in the world. Uh, We will send it to you curated. You have a little bit of wiggle room in terms of do you want Mark, David, myself... choose what the records are or you can just choose potluck Um, and you can change that month to month and get a bit of a variety but long story short we find great stuff, we make sure that the people that are making it are getting money for it uh, to help them out and we send you things that you almost certainly won't get otherwise and everybody wins because it's helping support the podcast at the same time so it's a lovely unsung record club Um, and bear in mind that if you don't want to get into all of that whether it's the digital or the the more expensive analog one with the real vinyls you can just come on as a basic subscriber uh, for four quid a month which is basically a a pound an episode less than a pound an episode plus all the bonus content that we're doing now regularly so yeah please uh, have at it It really helps us out. It takes a lot of time to make. We love making it. But the more self-sufficient it is, the better. And the more time we can dedicate to it, the better it is. And you're seeing that, hopefully, with all the bonus stuff that we're putting up now, which we've been getting some really good feedback about. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, and I also just want to say thanks to everybody who has taken the time to sign up to the Record Club. Uh, Like Chris says, we are curating some really great stuff. So hopefully we can keep delighting you, as we do with this podcast, with our record selections.
2: But this week... It is Fruccio's turn to delight you Or otherwise Let's find out Fruccio, do you want to introduce this album and this band?
3: Oh yeah, with pleasure In That petrol Emotion are a band it, That formed in uh, Northern Ireland In Derry uh, In 1985 More or less uh They, they were born out of the ashes of a very famous band, which was The Undertones. Uh, in particular, the, the O'Neill brothers, um, the two guitar players.
2: Can I just can I add a little bit of uh, trivia here? This band will very, very much tell you that they're from Derry and not Londonderry. The reasons for that will become apparent later in the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And... Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, they, 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 they were born out of the ashes of the Undertones, which were, which were um, a pretty popular band.
0: Dreams, so hard to beat Every time she walks down the street Another girl in the neighbourhood wish she was mad, she looks so good
3: which came out of uh, the, the, the Northern, Northern Ireland punk scene in the late 70s and obviously very famous for their hit, you know, Teenage Kicks. And as they progressed, the undertones became more and more of a what they once called Blue-Eyed Soul Band. Can you still say that? is <laughs> it still uh, accepted as a term perhaps it's a bit uh, a racist term I, 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 I don't know it's more that I just
2: I don't really know what it refers to I mean, is it ba- like
3: northern soul yeah, but white guys yeah basically, soul, basically or? Or? They, they started uh, incorporating these soul influences more and more I mean, it was something that a lot of the punk bands and the post-punk bands did at the beginning of the 80s. Think about script Politti becoming more and more like kind of soul and uh, sophisticated pop, like shiny soul. Uh, the, the same thing happened to a band like Human League, you know, starting from like Bleak Electronics and then becoming more and more like Disco and Soul or uh, uh, Oran Joyce from Glasgow. You know they did the same thing, basically. You know, uh, the jam, the jam becoming the style council. You know, and you know, so there was a, this trend of you know incorporating elements of soul music, rhythm and blues, and uh, kind of a new Motown kind of sounds. And and, and the Undertones be- were one of the main bands in this in this trend. And uh, the last two albums, Positive Touch, which is a still still a great album in my in my opinion. And then and then the last one, a Scene of Pride, I think, which. Perhaps it's a bit too too shiny. <laughs> uh, it's it's Tealustry. too illustrious, probably, and and the singer Firgar Sharkey became a, I don't know I don't know how to pronounce Irish names. So if any Irish person is listening, I don't know how to pronounce English names for that matter. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> go figure Irish names. And uh, Firgar Sharkey became a pretty uh, famous singer, soul singer in the mid eighties. And uh, the rest of the band uh, parted ways with him uh, he started his solo career and also became a, I think a, a Labour MP later on in hey, England uh, and the rest of the band basically disbanded uh, so they were like Quasi famous, you know, semi famous people <laughs> when they started the um, that motion because Undertones were regularly on top of the pops. You know, they, they were a pop band. You know, they were part of the pop scene, uh, rock pop scene, the uh, eighties rock pop scene in the UK. Even if they had punk roots, and and I think that uh, that Petrol Motion was an attempt to come back to those punk roots. I mean, to uh, even if they retain some of the funk, rhythm and blues influences of the uh, second half of the career uh, from uh, of the other tones, I think they. They went for the gnarliest <laughs> elements of that influence, you know. They went for the funkiest and deepest, you know, elements of of that uh, black music influence in the in the sound, and combined that with with uh, generous doses of Captain Biffard, uh aloofness, you know, and and the quirkiness, and uh, and some of the of of the new let's call them indie sounds from the mid '80s. You know, they they they, they were the evolution that the Undertones might have. Gone through. If instead of going uh, shiny pop <laughs> and and uh, and uh, soul and rhythm and blues, they would have gone uh, more towards a, a more of a funk, funk punk, or the style of uh, uh, the Gang of Four or the Pop Group, you know. So they took that route, you know, the, the route that they, the other films might have uh, could have taken at the beginning of the eighties, uh, and explored that, and I think they did it with brilliant results, especially for the first two albums.
2: So, um, some real basics. So they were, the, the band were kind of based in London, yes. but, you know, had roots in Ireland, had an American member, a guy called Steve yes. Mack, who was from Seattle. Um, they had five albums in total between 86 and 94. The two members that had been in the undertones, John O'Neill and Damien O'Neill, you're talking about other ways that their career could have gone. Damien O'Neill had actually turned down a position in Dexy's Midnight yeah. Runners to do uh, that Petrol Emotion uh, the band was completed by people like uh, Raymond Gorman Kieran McLaughlin, John Marchini, uh, Brendan Kelly later on different people that passed through the ranks at, at, at different times and I think four of them ended up going on to form a band called the Everlasting Yeah yes. m- much later on is that right um, the band are, I mean I don't really know what their status is, I know they reunited in 2008 for some tours yeah. and festival stuff.
3: Without, without John O'Neill though, without the main songwriter for the first 12.
2: yeah as a complete outsider of this band uh, one thing that did match with my sort of preconceptions about them um, I'd read the quote nearly everyone who was into document or green era REM used to like that petrol emotion uh, but Steve Mack got uh, annoyed after a while and the band's light out before they sort of got to the fireproof in some people's eyes um, I believe that there was a fair bit of frustration within the members and within O'Neill, uh, the lack of success compared to people or peers like My Bloody Valentine, Jesus and Mary Chain and even Sonic Youth who were coming onto the scene and so there's that sort of there's a tension around the band and why are we not doing better And uh, I mean, to put my cards on the table I've got a very strong theory on why that might have been
3: yeah, I have some. I have my ideas too.
2: <laughs> mm, I that. mean, one of the most obvious reasons I can see for why this band were not as successful, or at least didn't get the breaks that some of these other bands got, was their politics.
3: Yeah, absolutely. They were really controversial. I mean, they, they the lyrics were were really political. It was a pretty tense time uh, in Northern Ireland. Yeah,
2: so, yeah I mean, that petrol emotion were far more political and outspoken than the other absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Uh, the Irish members in the band listed their names in Irish forms, on the sleeve and in the songwriting. Uh, the, the lyrics, as you say, often touched on a lot of the troubles. I am mindful of the fact that we have a listenership that might not be able to disambiguate between a lot of these things. The Troubles in this case isn't, you know, it isn't the full Irish situation, but the Troubles is approximately three decades of political, social and religious violence and unrest in Northern Ireland that began around the early 60s and, in theory, ended, fingers crossed, with the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, although Brexit isn't doing much to... Make that the case. Um, the Troubles grew out of protests against int- institutionalised discrimination against the Roman Catholic minority and eventually escalated through the involvement of the British Army, who were originally brought in to sort of mediate between the factions. Um, it, it was an issue that saw communities literally walled off from each other with peace walls, you know, walls built across streets, built across parks and roads, and just to, to try and keep them separate physically. Regular acts of violence were committed by both sides and, and often even spilled over to both the Republic of Ireland in the south and on the mainland UK. Um, not to mention a, a long history of weapons trafficking side gigs that the various factions undertook to make a bit of pocket money and fund their shithousery. That petrol motion were very firmly addressing the subject from a pro-Republican stance uh or, you know, in Northern Irish parlance, basically a Catholic stance as well, um, which ultimately led to many instances of what could be seen by many, maybe understandably as excusing the actions of the IRA. Um, In the words of Raymond O'Gorman from the band With regards to the politics and having grown up with Protestants, my thing was always to go back to civil rights, to make people understand that the only reason the IRA were in existence in the first place was due to the intransigence of the British and the Unionists. The whole situation in Northern Ireland is too difficult to explain and hard for most outsiders to grasp Once we started talking about politics the music almost became secondary Um, So the band really leaned into that you know, they, it, it was a very, very, very delicate subject. I mean, even as I, I grew up in a kind of quasi-Roman Catholic background, I went to a, a Catholic high school, I was surrounded by this stuff from an early age. And it's a really difficult line to walk, even in Scotland and in the west of Scotland in particular, where there's, it's almost, you know, it's almost like a mirror image of Northern Ireland at times, the, the depth, and the, the the acrimony that's involved in it. Um, so, yeah, you you did often... Buttheads with the people that despised you because you were at you've just at a catholic school i'm I'm absolutely not Catholic, but just by going to a school you became a target but equally you would buttheads with people at the school who were going about chanting this pro i r a sentiment and it really became quite jingoistic it wasn't necessarily tied to any deep investment in politics it was just a sort of cultural identity thing um this band seemed to engage with the politics it quite a bit but a lot of people find that's kind of playing with fire because a lot of people are then not going to disassemble that and say oh well they're they're concerned with the politics not just the identity part of it um in the 1987 back sleeve of big decision single that they released it contained text criticizing the diplomat courts in northern ireland and their potential ability to force false confessions, basically, to extract forced confessions from people. Uh, And then the next single, Genius Move, was banned from being aired by the BBC due to a reference in the sleeve artwork to Sinn Féin politician Gerry Adams. Um, I believe it was actually their manager that put the artwork together as well. It wasn't an intentional thing in the part of the band. But to try and explain, again, for people that are a bit less familiar with this, why this is so sensitive and why I feel this, this just sabotaged their chances right from the start no matter how good the music was in December 1983 so that is maybe one or two years before this band get together the IRA bombed the Harrods department store and killed six people you know, a famous institution, shopping institution in mainland Britain, you know, full of the members of the public. Uh, in October 1984, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's cabinet narrowly escaped a bomb that killed five people at the Brighton Hotel during the Conservative Party conference. Really, really famous incident in British politics from the 80s. The photos are stunning, actually. Um, coverage of this band often mentions these things, you know, it often mentions their messaging and contrasts it with the public sentiment uh, to the campaigns that were taking place journalists have varying takes on it I noticed that the KEXP website uh, talks about some of their own DJs being far less than comfortable playing the band's music due to the band's politics, and if DJs are nervous about it, then it it must it simply must have had an impact any time somebody had a second thought about putting their records on and opted, "Uh, nah, I just I won't I'll sidestep the controversy you know if that's happening there and it's happening now to some extent still then imagine how much that was happening in the 80s journalists just it wasn't worth the hassle didn't want the phone calls didn't want to be associated with it right I'll just give that single a mix and play something by my bloody valentine or whatever so they really made it difficult for themselves I mean it's difficult because you see people should talk about what they believe in I get that they also have to deal with the consequences of that and whether history does or does not prove them right, I mean, certainly we can all have our own opinions on it. Um, I think much of what they were maybe making excuses for really wasn't right at all. Even if the original reasons for the troubles seemed quite understandable, the methodology and the consequences were atrocious. So I, I don't really, whilst the band may be frustrated, like what did, what did they expect? Like, what did they expect? I mean, the BBC banned that single. The band never had an appearance on Top of the Pops, despite seeming like an obvious candidate to be on Top of the Pops, you know, as you say, Frutio, because the undertones were so popular and yeah. ubiquitous. It seems like the kind of band that would have made an appearance. I mean, how many other TV performances did they forfeit? And and that, uh, Raymond Gorman did comment, slightly embittered comments about how, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood were also banned by the BBC, but due to the nature of their ban and it led to more people speaking out in their favour and ultimately probably helped to band out. It's like, well, fair enough, Raymond, but Frankie Goes to Hollywood were were banned because they were kind of pioneers of the LGBT movement. You know, it's not the same as being seen to advocate or at least excuse a, an organisation that was responsible for the Omar bombing. You know it's it's just not the same
3: yeah i mean uh, i think that one of the reasons why i mean i think uh, a lot of these tensions were ob- obviously also exacerbated by um augmented by the the, the, the times you know That era, the Thatcher era, you know, was very common for uh, underground bands to have, uh, or in general, (laughs) I would say, um, bands were coming from the independent scene to have strong political opinions. Uh, It's also, it also must be said that the undertones were often accused by the rest of the uh, Northern Irish scene of not uh, engaging of being uh, too much of a lightweight and uh, almost cheesy cheesy band, you know, because they sang about Mars bars and girlfriends and uh, teenage sex and all these things, you know um, instead of instead of talking about the situation in Ireland compared to bands like Stiff Little Fingers, for instance were absolutely super political uh, but I have to say that for instance Stiff Little Fingers, as much as they were political and talking about the problems political situation all the time, they, they, they were maybe lamenting the the situation and the fact that the choices that young people had to do and uh, the tension they were under instead of openly siding for for one for one i guess that yeah that petrol emotion took sides <laughs> the, the petroleum motion, it was almost like they wanted. i mean i uh, i guess that a lot of what this band is about is being the undertones alternative history <laughs> alternative story yeah you know being uh, yeah. like the the radical both in musical and, and and political terms, being the radical band that the Andertons could have been or turned into at the beginning of the 80s, instead of becoming a kind of a hit machine, you know, <laughs> which which they, they became for a while, for a couple of years at least, and then, and then Frigel Scherke became very famous, obviously. But... Um, so it's almost like they wanted to uh mm. to make up for lost time you know what i mean also it's yeah, also awesome com- compensate. yeah compensate sorry sorry that's the right word compensare <laughs> it's the same in italian and uh i think they, they almost they, probably they stressed that a lot and also they they weren't uh, helped i would say by the surroundings because it was most bands were being very political. Most English bands were anti Thatcher. You know, they were expressing very, very strong sen- uh, feelings and uh,
2: not Joy Division.
3: But, well, I don't know. It's, it's it's a complicated issue there as well.
2: I'm being a troll. Yeah. Don't worry.
3: But but you know, obviously, being political in the Irish context was much more explosive. <laughs> Sorry for the yeah. uh, the bim, bim. That yeah. <laughs> was not intended. Was much more uh, uh, provocative than than, than than perhaps in other parts of, of the UK uh, or even the rest of Europe. Not not Italy. Italy was. Pretty, pretty intense too. Yeah. <laughs> So it was pretty intense, you know, and uh, the, the, the climate was intense and uh, it was a band which was looking for a new identity um, coming from a semi-pop star past. Not being from that context, probably for you, being part of the United Kingdom, certain political uh, aspects of the, of the Death Petrol Emotions lyrics and, and and stances in general might uh, sound more problematic than they'd sound to me, you know? Because, yeah. of course, I know the history, but I'm not there, you know? <laughs> I haven't been there. and uh,
2: It's just such a, it's such a horribly complex and nuanced conversation because, as I say, there are so many things about the original motivation and the ideology behind the the Republican movement that you can understand and the the discrimination against the Catholic community was horrendous and went on right the way through the 80s and into the modern era in, in some respects but a lot of what the IRA became I mean they were they were at one point just you know just a gang you know the drug running was just making money for them and so it's it's such a nuanced thing yeah and the the problem is how do you address that nuance in pop songs and is it not not is it worth it it is worth it you know you would encourage people to speak their mind but goddamn, they have to be prepared for the fallout as well
3: I didn't know about the frustration you were mentioning I mean I I, I never also because I have to say that after the second uh, I mean I bought I I bought the albums until the third one and um then, then I lost interest I have to say because then grunge happened basically <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of new stuff you know uh, post-rock you know slint and all this stuff that was coming so I can my life changed musically <laughs> around 1991 uh, um, so so I lost interest in, in that path of emotion uh, uh, also, that's why you have the first three albums I mean I listened to the other two obviously and, uh, and with pleasure because I think the, there's some good stuff there too but uh, so I lost interest in them actually. But I didn't know about the frustration you know they they felt about uh, uh, the lack of success. I think another reason is that. Uh, they had a lot of like grim, uh, grim and tense post-punk uh, elements to their music that were a bit out outdated, probably in 1987 mm-hmm. yeah. or 86. You know, they, they were a bit mm-hmm. uh, like, somehow a throwback to the early 80s in a way. Especially the second album, Bubble. I mean, it sounds like a, a Captain Beefheart uh, album played by a post-punk band. You know, by, play, played by Gang of Four or something like that, which was. Against the tide, you know, in those times.
2: No, that's that's a great point actually for us to, to maybe talk about some of the other records and to to sort of like clear the decks here. Looking at fan polls and things, Rate Your Music had Manic Pop Thrills as their their, their best album, but the fourth album, one that you checked out before it, "Kemi Crazy," was quite popular. That came in at number two, and then "Babble" was number three. Uh, best ever albums poll had. End of the Millennium, psychosis blues is their best. Manic pop thrills as their second best, and babble is their third best. I did notice as well on album of the year. Uh, Which has a a rating system A parallel rating system between fans and critics Critics preferred Babbel But audiences preferred Manic Pop Thrills quite a bit So it's interesting to see the discrepancy there Babbel, the 1987 album The second album uh, gets All music has it at 4.5 at 5 It's very well received Critically, I think there's uh, Leonard's Lair website said 1987 was a lean year for inventive guitar rock But that petrol emotion provided The energetic zenith to Bon Jovi's airbrushed Nadir. Yeah, uh, Johnny Loftus at All Music said it's walls of guitars, incessant processed snare kicks and snarling vocals celebrated the empty calories of pop music and did so with bared teeth. Babble became a bridge between blissfully ignorant dance, radio-ready pop and the remaining sentiment of punk rock.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I was very... uh, I mean, uh, I was divided uh, when choosing which record uh, because Babble is... Probably I am more emotionally connected to Bubble than than to that that many pop thrill because uh, you know I, I I bought it when it came out and, and uh, still to this day it's one of the records for me it's a reference point on how to handle the interplay between two guitars in a rock band they were making great guitar records at a time when great guitar records were out of fashion and Bubble is 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 a fantastic album and they also. Had, you know, it's more intense and grim and darker than than manic pop thrill. There's tension almost in every tra- track, apart from the single like Big Decision, which is which is now can, can be seen as a cheesy attempt of uh, making uh, some kind of crossover between hip hop and, and alternative rock.
2: that was their biggest single yeah. that got to number four. I, I think it's still yeah. fun you know it's a fun it's a fun, yeah. it's a
3: fun record to to play see
2: that's that's a song I could have imagined them getting on pop, top of the pops with and I could imagine if they'd gotten top of the pops with that if they'd gotten proper radio backing that's a song that would have probably gone higher than it did I think it's at 42 it's peaking at 42 because they're toxic
3: yeah yeah I mean I think uh, I think one of the best songs that I've ever done is Creeping to the Cross you know the, 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 the track that closes the album <laughs> which is almost elect- kind, of, kind of electronic, kind of this this like intense, relentless uh, beat. And I absolutely love Swamp, the opener. It's really sounding like kind of a early beef heart across with, yeah, Gang of Four, as I said before, Gang of Four pop group, you know, that kind of sound. <laughs> I think "Split" it's it's another great song. I mean, I mean it's it's a great album. I think it's probably you know up there with Manic pop thrill, if not in certain parts even more original than many pop thrill, uh, because of their attempt to incorporate those uh, uh, funkier elements and uh, also electronic elements too.
1: I really enjoyed Babble um, I don't know if it's better than Manic Pop Thrill but I really enjoyed it um, Swamp actually does feel quite swampy but I think it's because it kind of evokes Creedence Clearwater Revival with that lead guitar part the kind of slidey thing it does um, I think Static is pretty cool the kind of walk rhythm Yeah. It's quite textured that song. Um, I think Bellybugs Bugs has got some really interesting off color guitar works, and I think that that and Creep into the Cross for me they really evoked Holy Bible Romantics. You know the kind of post-punky stuff they were doing on that. Oh yeah, guitar lines, some of the some of the tones that, that are used on that record I can probably see came from this, and also a bit of Susie and the Banshees as well. I think comes in guitar-wise. Yeah, Belly Bugs and Creep into the Clock Cross are quite unsettling songs and Creepin' to the Cross is actually quite catchy, despite how intense it is. Yeah, um,
3: it, it is. I DJ'd that song a few times with various w- mixed results, but I, <laughs> I, I, did. I DJ'd. No, I mean, uh, yes, it, it's it's a pretty intense album, very grim, very very intense, very dark, and uh, uh, I love it. I mean, uh, also, you, know, you have to remember that, what, for instance, when what, what the whole Madchester Mad thing started to happen, you know, the Stone Roses, the Charlatans, you know, late eighties, you know, uh, it wasn't that new to me because I already heard that Petrol Emotion, which were starting to do that, you know, I, I already had that uh, mixture between dance culture and uh, hip hop and, uh, and uh, alternative rock and, and post punk and stuff it was already there. Like, for instance, a record like uh, "The Squirrel and the G-Man" by Happy Mondays, you know.
0: And didn't
2: you say that it's okay, then it's okay for me to do? And did he you say that
3: it's all right, then it's all right for you? Which is kind of a, produced by John Cale, I think, which is a mixture between um, post-punk atmospheres and dancey grooves, you know? It was already there in in, in that Petrol Emotion, you know, in in those records, you know, especially Bubble and and, and the one after that, you know, so uh, there's a lot of stuff that came out later uh, in the dance rock environment, uh, bands like Jesus Jones... (laughs) even bands like yeah. i think they're from Glasgow the soup dragons you know started to yeah, they were much yeah, much absolutely.
2: they were much more commercial than, than yeah. can i can i can i pick up on that actually because it's actually as of end of the millennium psychosis blues this, the next album in 1988 that I really hear the the germination of that um baggy scene yeah. sound that, that that even the proto britpop thing you know that, like say happy mondays stone roses I'm charlatans even like ride and remember the early ocean colour scene stuff as well like that kind of bouncy thing a lot of the drum beats they go to those sort of archetypal Britpop baggy Manchester scene drum beats start to, to pop up um, End of the Millennium Psychosis Blues is quite a, an uneasy record because apparently John O'Neill announced plans to leave the band but stayed to record Gorman said in hindsight they should ask them to go immediately because the recording sessions were really tense due to the the shock from the announcement Um, The album also had a concept behind it which was meant to mimic the mixtapes that they had on their bus So it was meant to have like a really varied sort of jumping about thing to it But as a result it was met with kind of confused reactions because it was perceived to be quite inconsistent
1: It sounds quite disjointed to me, you know, there wasn't really a lot on that that stuck with me, although I did appreciate that they were trying to do different things. I think one of the things that really struck me about Babel and Manic Pop Thrill is that there are records that take risks. For the kind of music that they're playing Whereas End of the, end of the Millennium cycle I suppose, takes different kinds of risks And are a lot less assured In taking those risks and I think A lot of the time it kind of fails for me I agree yeah, me too. Um, Came Me Crazy, the, the 1990
2: album Was actually produced by Scott Litt, So I guess that ties in with the early R.E.M. fan Sort of analogy uh utilised the this changed lineup that they had post the Neil's departure. Um the album underperformed, I think, despite some fairly high expectations and that, that performance led to them leaving Virgin that they were on at the time. The site Vulture Hound reckoned it was as good as any of their records and, and pointed out that they were pushing away from the, the noise pop thing they'd been doing earlier on. But yeah, as I say, I think people suspected they were about to either make or break that and it seemed to break in the bad way Um, afterwards they ended up setting up their own label Kugat, and uh, recruited a new bassist guy called Brendan Kelly who I mean amongst all the fan discussions I saw people were commenting on the harder edge that they got from his tone and his playing and Fireproof the 93 album really you know exemplifies that Alex Og Yeah, All Music Guy who reviews quite a lot of stuff Fireproof has its moments Last of the True Believers is one As are the impassioned singles Detonate My Dreams and Catch a Fire He gave it 6 out of 10 You know, the, the general reaction was That it wasn't terrible But there was something just lacking in it mm-hmm. But it's definitely, it's definitely crunchier
1: You know um, It's more American sounding, I think
2: I think a lot of people said, you know, this has a sound that could have crossed into other markets, but it doesn't have a label back in it, really. It just had their own Kuga imprint. Um, a Billboard review at the time, actually, of that album's release, it came out in the USA the year after, um, and they described it as an eye popping return to form. By the way, I did notice as well, for a bit of trivia to try and place this uh, Fireproof was released in the States the exact same day as Super Unknown by SoundGuard. Oh,
3: yeah. i think it's, it's a better album than i thought it was i mean i i actually i have to, I have to be sincere i, I hadn't listened to it before getting and uh, trying to get ready for this <laughs> and uh i mean i think i heard a couple of songs back in the day and not I'm not being uh, very interested in it but i think it's a better album than than most most people think it is because you know it's a, it's, it's quite intense and good songs i mean there was a lot of stuff in that style coming out in the early 90s and i don't think they they stood out. I mean, at least they didn't stand out as as they used to do with, the, with their first albums so
2: I, I find it a wee bit soggy there's something about it it's just like a, it's, it's a bit wet and it, it doesn't have the brittle energy of the, the early stuff
3: yeah I think one of the reasons also because it's the fact that you know perhaps they weren't embraced by any scene the 80s were a, a very tribalized period in the music scene you know bands were successful take for instance The Cult they became famous as a hard rock band but their fan base was built within the, the gothic subculture and stuff so most of the times you have to have your roots somewhere within a subculture that path yeah. of emotion didn't have their roots anywhere they were a standalone band for many for many reasons so that those these kind of bands they can only become hyper successful if they have a great single, or if they, you know, somehow they emerge in a way that you know that, that it's different from the standard uh, route. Uh, like the, they were a little bit has-beens, you know, also in, in another way. In a way, you like, know, because yeah, they were coming yeah. from a semi-famous uh, band like The Undertones, and the, so I think they they weren't in a very Easy position for a band uh, in the 80s. They were uh, a bit in nowhere um, land, you know.
2: <laughs> sure, yeah. And Mark, see if the other albums, was there any of the stuff really popped out to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of songs in End uh, of the Millennium, Psychosis Blues, sort of did, but not for good reasons, I don't think. <laughs> um, oh, right, okay. Cellophane, I think, is quite interesting because it's got a Celtic feel, it's got the accordion, yeah. it the guitars. And it, like I said, it feels a bit more risky um, Groove Check is pure, like It's pure white boy funk And not in a good way <laughs> um, But there's some interesting guitar playing And there's always interesting guitar playing with this band Which is one of the things I enjoyed about them Even in the records I didn't really like Um mm. Crazy, Hey Venus is a really good Straight ahead, just like sort of Pop rock song I think And Blue to Black is kind of a bit jazzy, but has a weird dark edge, which I thought was cool. And then mm-hmm. Detonate My Dreams is a pure American radio song from, from uh, Fireproof. This
0: knows it, this
1: if they're trying to be like REM, I guess, start. Getting really fucking close with that Yeah But that's the only things that really stuck out to me in, in the other three records um, Well, why don't we have a look at
2: Manic Pop Thrill then uh, Just to do a, a little bit of background on it It went to number one in the UK indie chart when it came out John Peel was a, a big champion of it Mark, I thought this was quite interesting Rolling Stone agreed with you They described the band as the clash crossed with Creedence Clearwater Revival Yeah, makes um, sense. The New York Times uh, described them as youthful Rolling Stones meets a revved-up television. Uh, the record was released in Demon Records. And Demon, by the way, uh, also released Banana Rama. <laughs> <laughs> their, their early stuff. Um, after various acquisitions, I think Demon's now the, like a BBC Studios-owned reissues label for, you know, odds and sods. Um, Maximum Rock and Roll in 1986. <laughs> Rather acerbically commented, a couple of former undertones blend pop, post-punk and folky experimentation with mixed results. Somewhat of a letdown after the good recommendations I've heard, as I found it lacking in punch and focus, not dynamic. So, I mean, even just in there, the way they've dismissively said a couple of former undertones. Yeah, you know what I mean? It, it's got that sort of negative, that, that pejorative sort of yeah. reference to, to, to their the has been status um all music has the critic rating on this album at 80 percent. the audience at 75 and hot press uh, said one is confronted by an overwhelming sense of purpose an innate pop sensibility and near total comprehension of the effectiveness of the art of noise a really glowing and quite poetic little turn of phrase there i thought this was a really interesting listen even just the, the from the minute you press play sonically it's it's quite intriguing
3: it's a great album i mean i think uh, again uh, even more than bubble is it's one of my bible's for uh, when it comes to guitar interplay, I think they're masters of that. I think the, what uh, Riemann, Gorman, and uh, Sh- Sean O'Neill, I think what they do is pretty incredible. Yeah, I, I get the television comparison a lot because it sounds like a, a compact version of television, you know, television without yeah, the solos, yeah. without the, the, the long solos, you know. It's, it's the, without the meandering self indulgence. Exactly, stuff, but yeah. I, I, I like the meandering self indulgence of television. Oh, me too. I love, oh, love it, it But, you know, I love that they they condense that in these two minute songs, you know, and uh, they have this, they they sound like a popier version of the Minutemen because, you know, they have this very fast interaction between grooves, riffs, licks and, you know, the two guitars and uh, in very short songs. uh, Obviously, they're much popier than, than the Minutemen. And I think they are one of those bands that that have crossed over. They they bridge the gap between post-punk and the noise rock of the early 90s, late 80s. Because by retaining some of the gnarly attitude of early post-punk, they kind of uh, brought some elements. Of uh, sonic research and uh, you know and uh, daring guitar uh, interplay into what was going to become noise rock uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. I think they are one of those bands that kind of bridge that that gap, musically speaking. Yeah, and I get also, also get the credence reference because there's some traditional element to them also, but the use of uh, the jungle beat like Lay, you know, in a song like uh, Flashprint, for instance, the, the opener. So, mm. I mean, they have a, a lot of things to themselves, sonically speaking, and uh, it's a shame that they couldn't, yeah, probably because of the political thing, they couldn't uh, do more with that.
1: <laughs> it's mouth Crazy's got distorted harmonica in it, you know, which... Is again kind of harking back to that swampy kind of feeling that Creedence used to always go with.
2: Ferruccio, would you want to do a very brief tour of the songs? Just skim through them.
3: Yeah, yeah, of course. A flashpoint. I mean, the opener is, is uh, yeah, it's got this, this jungle beat, which is, which is, I think, I think is one of the elements that harks back to those traditional style that inspire those uh, Creedence comparisons, you know. And uh, I think it's a great opener.
2: I mean, I think Fleshprint is all about the hi-hat. I think that's, that's the yeah. propulsive ingredient all the way through that song. Also, the,
1: I felt that backing vocal, that doo-doo-doo was, was very Rolling Stones-y. Yeah, I like that. Um, that was my highlight yeah. for that cool, song. Yeah, yeah. I like I yeah. like the energy of it as well. And the bass playing, by the way. he's a fl- I know he's a guitar player, right? It's a Damien? Yeah, Damien, yeah,
3: you know? yeah, yeah. Like, Used to be the, like he like,
1: yeah, the under- He's a fantastic bass player. He he anchors a lot of these songs, and it, it does immediately from the first from the word go on this album. He anchors it on this. Yeah,
3: can't stop is pretty much an archetypal death Petrol emotion early death Petrol emotion uh, song, I guess. It's one of my favorite favorite tracks on on the album. It's uh, their take on, on post punk. You know they were the most post punk mm. tunes on the on the entire album.
2: It's strange in that song because the distortion on the guitar is almost a like square wave yeah. distortion. Mm. <laughs> You know, it, it sounds almost like it's been DI'd which I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. Yeah. But it's just incredibly sheer yeah, at the top. Totally, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the the tracks got really good energy, and I, I really love the sound of it. The only thing was, it didn't have. A hookiness to it. It was like a final, that third ingredient, the, the triumvirate of like a great song, fantastic energy, great tones. But it just it never fully got under my skin with a nice
1: melody or a, a refrain. You know, see the, the the rhythm guitar, the way it just kind of rattles through that those four chords played in various different mm-hmm. ways. This is going to sound dead weird, right? But it reminded me of Black Flag. not when they were like full on hardcore but when they started to experiment as things went on it had that same vibe about it that chord progression yeah yeah the
3: Greg In kind of uh, disarticulate kind of Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah, it's true it's true yeah Yeah. and uh, okay Lifeblood
2: The, the one thing that really stood out in this song for me Was I love the wobbly ah, string yeah. effect You know when you're oh, when you're holding a note But then you manipulate the string I love doing that yeah. as a guitarist But god damn it it fucks up your frets
1: Yeah I mean the, the lead is doing some really interesting things Throughout this song and I think it's got a really cool structure as well Even the keyboards sound quite nice And the thing that, that kind of hooked me Apart from the and riff in the outro Was the way that the bass and the drums Are just like locked in a solid good rhythm
3: Yeah
1: Um, and that, again, I guess that's a bit credency You know, they were always in the pocket In terms of a bit of an R&B flavour And while well, this isn't quite R&B It's got the same kind of dynamic
2: um, a, a lot of the songs in this album Are really pleasingly succinct And efficiently mm. sort of sheared And trimmed and short uh, I think Natural Kind of Joy is no exception It's, it's kind of a personal favourite on it actually The only reservation I have is when you listen to it on headphones the, the ping pong panning is <laughs> yeah. You know, distracting. Yeah. You know, just at the speed that it goes at, even they could maybe a half sped it or something like that. But I mean it's 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 actually melodically a lovely song, but uh yeah the production is
1: maybe a little bit off putting yeah the keyboards sound like the exact same keyboard that was used in simply having a wonderful christmas time by paul mccartney <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, i thought it was a bit, a bit grim but um one thing that is quite interesting is i hear quite a lot of the beatles and uh, steve max vocals uh, particularly oh, yeah? john lennon yeah i hear a lot of lennon um, I agree, and i agree and you get it on this i mean even the maracas or the shakers or whatever is in this song it's the whole thing it's got a whole bunch of different textures going on and it's kind of jaunty it Kind of stands out from quite a dark record.
2: Uh, it's a good thing. It's um, a single. It's a dirty, a dirty, it 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 yeah. It's, it's single, yeah. You know, the thing is. I don't think it's their best tune, but I do really love the wee guitar yeah. that descends.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. I uh, love that. That, that is the main hook of the song. That's,
3: telev- that's pure television. Uh, the chorus
1: I mean. vocal has a pure replacements vibe for me. Like, you know, true.
3: Like yeah, yeah. Early oh. replacements. You know, one, one more thing about the fact that they were a bit of a displaced band, in my opinion. They were like. Other Irish people in London. Okay, there's a big community of other Irish people in London, but still, and with the, with an American singer who came to London to study, you know, they were kind of uh, people who found themselves, you know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, y- yeah. you know, obviously it doesn't take anything away from, from them uh, under the musical point of view, but they really were what i call an unidentified rock object <laughs> because i used to have a, a radio a radio program where I, I was going through bands that in my opinion don't really fit anywhere but they're great anyway <laughs> and that's yeah. Motion were or one of those bands you know
1: so i did mention circusville earlier on because it's got that slide guitar it's got that glassy tone on the lead The Vocals are a lot more aggressive in this song Probably the most aggressive on the album actually And yeah I think this song's got a different feel For the rest of the record Probably because it feels a bit circusy I think that's the vibe right Which I quite liked uh, And yeah and then you've already mentioned Mouth Crazy earlier
2: on um, I mean that's the sound of a proper rock band Uh, great distortion Tone in it I love it um, And it's very snarly It's very snotty It's got You know Some of the punk roots Really showing through mm-hmm.
1: Harmonica um, eight Distorted harmonica It feels a bit Rolling yeah. stonesy as Yeah It's pretty badass Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the The sequencing
2: title-wise To go from Mouth-crazy To tight-lipped <laughs> As well Yeah, uh, I like the angsty guitar in it. You know what? The, the guitar in this one actually, the lines and the playing reminded me a wee bit of the
3: Wipers. True, that's another reference. I, yeah. Oh, it's good because your 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 perspective is making me discover a lot of things that I heard in this band that I couldn't really identify. And uh, yeah, the Wipers is absolutely uh, something that comes across, especially you know, early era. Yeah. It's, it's totally true, especially in track like tight Lipped. You're right.
2: Fantastic. That's why we do this podcast, <laughs> folks. <laughs> um, million Miles Away.
3: lovely and yeah I mean they always had this passion for, for like ballads you know they, they, they always did uh, they, sometimes they had this like more kind of more romantic songs Uh yeah it's, it's always been there since the, uh, the, the early stuff you know do
2: you, do you know who it reminds me of and you, you know it made me think of Blur Um hmm. not, not early kind of obnoxious Blur but when Blur are trying to be a wee bit delicate or a bit cute that kind of thing like Tender or something Yeah, tender and coffee and cigarettes and all their kind of more twee moments. They've got a nice ear for being twee, but actually making the song work as well. And it just you know that was just what came to mind when I was
1: listening to that one. The vocal gives me John Lennon vibes heavily on this, Um, but the guitars are lovely, like doing really lovely, interesting, intricate things. It's a lovely, Mm -hmm. lovely song that. Um, talking about uh, songs
2: that bring somebody to mind let us Lettuce. Just, in, just, just just immediately it made me think of Venus and Furs by the Velvet. Yeah. So <laughs> the
1: Obviously
0: another
3: obvious influence, you know, It's uh uh, the Velvet, yeah. I mean, uh, I think they what they brought over. I mean, in the mid eighties the when, when this record came out, I mean, I it really made me understand, uh, for instance, the first Velvet Underground album much better. Because when I, I remember when I bought the first Velvet Underground album, it was a big letdown for me. Because I was expecting something like the Stooges, you know, or uh, the MC Five. Yeah. I don't know because you know you didn't have a, you didn't have I didn't have anywhere to listen to the album previously. So when I bought it, I thought, okay, it's going to be rocking from head to finish. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, what is this? You know, it's Sunday morning. <laughs> and then when I got that Petrol Emotion, I got many Pop Thrill, and I, I found all the clear Velvet Underground references. In their music, especially in the song Let like Latius," okay, I, I came back to the first Velvet Underground album with different ears. So you're absolutely mm. right. I mean, you can hear this um, atmospheric uh, kind of uh, yet. It's
2: like a, there's that dark dark, cabaret yeah, exactly. a dark. Cabaret, well, yeah, exactly, dark cover, yeah,
3: almost uh, vaudeville <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, Cheapskate, another proper punk yeah. rock tune.
1: I found this song a bit underwhelming to be honest I just wanted them to go mental They keep ramping up, bringing the tension up And they never fully go like crazy Which is what I wanted So it's more of my expectation than the song itself The song itself is, I, is good
3: I actually think it's it's strength The fact that uh, uh, this unresolved tension I think it's a big part of the entire uh, Death Petrol Emotion aesthetic Uh Musically speaking, I mean, uh, it's also a, a, a paradigm for uh, for the political situation they often go about yeah. go on about, sure. you know, this this idea of this unresolved tension and it's always mounting and, and with with, with sudden moments of of, uh, of uh, violent release, but you know, never really blows up. And uh, mm-hmm. I think I think this, this song is, is it's actually one of my favorites because of this. I think they will be will be exploring this much more. In Babel, you know, where you get a lot of tracks that have this kind of almost anxiety to them, you know. I mean, sometimes it's anti-cathartic. You know what I mean? Mm. It's energetic mm, yeah. but not entirely cathartic, uh, which is something that uh, applies to the sound of these early records.
2: So, um, and just to be clear, we're we're dealing with the original uh, release of this. I know there's kind of augmented versions, but the last song would be the next one, Blind Spot, on that original edition.
3: It, it's, it, I think it, it anticipates a little bit uh, the more indie stuff on records like uh, End of the Millennium, Psycho- Psychosis Blues or, or Came Me Crazy, you know. It's a good song, but, you know, it's not my favourite of the album, even if yeah. even if I obviously like it, because I like the entire album. It
1: kind of feels like it's repeating some of the better, trying to repeat some of the better moments from earlier on in the record. It's, it's fine.
2: Well, I mean, overall... I wasn't sure what to expect. I think the strange thing is, um, I don't know why I did it, but when you when you suggested the band, I started listening backwards. I listened to their newer stuff, and that really isn't something I could have gotten behind. I, I, I think it undersold itself, but that doesn't mean that I like it because there was a lot of music that was doing well that I didn't like around about that baggy period. You named some of them earlier on, so did I, but. Working backwards, I liked the band more the earlier I got in their career. And by the time I got to this, I was like, yeah, this is cool. I can't say that the songwriting was always as catchy as I would personally like. If I had grown up with the album or if I'd gotten a bit more used to it, um, it would be something that really worked for me. So, I mean, in terms of it being unsung, I think so, yeah. I I do think it's interesting that, in my opinion, the band, you know, uh, cut their own Achilles tendons with their... um, particular approach to their politics that said it's a bit rich of me because i'm i'm kind of known for speaking my mind and <laughs> if it's something a matter of principle i just i just think it's unfortunately once you go i, I just think it, you know that is a hill that you die on in the mid 1980s you know two years after the blown up harrods in a hotel in brighton it's just it's not a winning formula no matter how good your songs are so yeah that's that's my two cents on why they probably didn't get as good as they possibly could have, and probably deserved to.
3: Can I can I say something about this? I mean, I, I think that in a moment in which uh, we have a lot of uh, musicians and bands who are very afraid of taking a stance, you know, and and uh, somehow very afraid of, of taking a position. I mean, I, I don't want to get into the debate uh, about the, 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 how ethical, how right or, or how wrong, Manic Pop were. Uh, sorry, that Motion were. When they when they said the things that they were saying, but you know, I just the courage of saying certain things, you know, and the fact that yeah. they putting themselves on the line in that in that aspect, uh, I mean, even if you can be critical about about the nature of what they said, uh, I I think it's. Uh, something that is a bit lacking in uh, in, in modern music <laughs> like yeah of course there's people who, who like they say whatever you know is expected from them to say like in terms of political context mm-hmm. and stuff i mean but this band actually probably sabotaged themselves obviously they took an unfashionable stance. yeah they stance took an and unfashionable and stance that, and uh, i mean they I, were from there you know they were from from northern ireland so you know uh, they were speaking from a as insiders yeah. you know, uh, like, uh, apart from... They're entitled to
1: comment Yeah, yeah absolutely
2: Yeah,
1: uh, I wasn't sure what to expect to be honest Um And a, a, a bit like you Chris I started from the end and worked my way back cause That's kind of what I usually do anyway And create a playlist of all the songs that stand out to me And then eventually Go to the album we're doing Whenever that happens to be in the catalogue Always skipping that first And doing that at the end The very last thing I listen to is usually the album we're doing And um, the playlist that I made has got I think it goes like one from the the last album, and then two from Came Crazy, and then two from End of End of Millennium, and then there's was like half of Babble was on it, and then obviously we did this record, which I think is the best one. Um, and I actually I really enjoyed it, just mostly for the guitar work, like you said earlier on for the um, show. The guitar interplay is is tremendous, and that's the thing that really kept me engaged. I don't think it's as hooky as it could be. I kind of don't think that's the point of it so I, I'm a bit bemused when they say when they talk about how they were a bit they feel a bit hard done by they never got further success Well, it didn't to me doesn't really seem as though they are trying hard enough to make Yeah. Pop yeah.
2: Then again, you know, my bloody Valentine aren't exactly hooky. It's more of a style kind of cult thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? So I, I mean, I don't know the exact nature of their grievance. I just those were just quotes that you know cropped up.
1: Yeah, but I, I liked it. You know, I, I think it's definitely unsung. Had never heard of this band before. Had obviously heard of the Undertones. Yeah, I guess a big pass for me I'll probably go back and listen to it, a, a whole bunch more
3: I'm glad, I'm glad I've earned that Patrol Emotion a new fan
2: Possibly more uh, So it's it's time for the Nexus 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 the- Nexus Nexus Nexus
0: Nexus Nexus a complicated series of connections between different things.
2: Right, we're, we're going to do something a little bit different this week anyway. I'm going to do the Nexus because this is very much a, a, an English or at least okay. British celebrity, so that's it's not exactly fair. And you know what? It's been a sombre, heavy week. I think it would be good to do something that's sort of topical and relevant, okay? So come with me in this journey. Davy Bright, you nominated Joan Craven. We're going from that Petrol Emotion to John Craven. Uh, in or around 1984, 1985, the comedian Paul Whitehouse auditioned for that Petrol Emotion. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now that's crazy if you're from Britain. I don't know, you if Paul Whitehouse got to Italy. He, was, he did the fast, fast show. Not really, and, uh, but uh,
3: a big, uh, big uh, interested in uh, the UK culture, I, I know who he is. Yeah.
2: yeah. In Armando Iannucci's film, The Death of Stalin... Oh, that's a great Paul, film. <laughs> pa- a fantastic film. Fantastic film. Paul Whitehouse played uh, the character of Anastas Mikoyan. Mikoyan was actually the only person to make it through the Bureau under Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, and then all the way to retiring peacefully under Brezhnev. Um, no small feat. McCoyan was also actually the first of the Politburo uh, to include anti-Stalin comments in a speech following Stalin's death in 53 the the most famous such speech, the the most famous critical speech was called the secret speech and it was made by Khrushchev to a closed session of the 20th Soviet Congress Uh, this was part of his uh, unfolding de-Stalinisation campaign as he referred to it Uh, uh, the speech condemned Stalin for a variety of things uh, such as the great purges of political foe uh, military underpreparedness prior to the war with germany uh, the deportation of some ethnic groups uh, and a variety of other i would suggest comparatively lesser sins when you put them against the waves of death and misery inflicted upon the population by the policies of collectivization uh, Collectivisation in in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was seen by many as a, a return to serfdom. It was so abject. Uh, farmers and producers basically surrendered increasingly unsustainable ratios of their crops, livestock and yield to the government so that the government could then, you know, in theory redistribute it as per their communist ideals, even though a, a remarkably large proportion of it seemed to end up on the very well-stocked tables at the Politburo. Um Following a terrible harvest in 1932, the ultra-strict enforcement of collectivisation in Ukraine meant uh, that the the country experienced something known as the Holodomor. Since 2006, uh, the Holodomor has been recognised by 16 countries as a genocide. Uh, Early UN figures suggested as many as 10 million deaths directly resulting from it. More recent studies have said it's closer to 4 to 6 million um, and that there were around 6 million what they call birth deficits over the following 15 years so all of the countries in Europe and especially in that area including the Soviet Union experienced large population increases Ukraine did not experience a large population increase because so many people died during Holodomor and so many people were displaced as well it was an unspeakable tragedy that the country endured uh, 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 notoriously things like cannibalism were rife, um, there are so some su- superb and really truly heartbreaking books such as Apple Applebaum's Red Famine. I'm not saying that for shock value, I'm saying that to try and convey what was a deliberate horror inflicted on a country and the government knew it, they knew what they were doing. And they, they, they kept it going. They kept it going. They tightened the nut on that country. And and really, Halodomor was being used as a means of crushing the Ukrainian uh, nationalist movement, something that they'd already done repeatedly prior to that. So I just want to kind of illustrate what a horrendous time this country ex- experienced in, in that period. And then a decade later, Ukraine was also one of the worst affected places in World War Two. So whether it was because of Germany and Russia's respective scorched earth policies where the Germans were like, right, leave nothing standing. And then the Russians were like, right, leave, leave nothing standing for the Germans. The, the country was absolutely ravaged. Uh, they had 2.2 million citizens sent to forced labour camps and nearly 7 million civilians and military personnel killed. Uh, and by the end of the war, they estimated that 19 million Ukrainians were left homeless. And for the record, and something that we're seeing recurring just now, uh, some members of the far left, especially people that were ideologically aligned with communism, have repeatedly gone out of their way to diminish the roles of the Soviet Union in that. To say, oh, Stalin didn't know about it, or the numbers are grossly exaggerated, one particular advocate of the exaggeration, which I would suggest is tantamount to sort of Holocaust revisionism, uh, was a guy called Seamus Milne, chief advisor to Jeremy Corbyn, who I believe revised the Holodomor death toll down from many many millions to about 230,000 um, and he did that and I think it was the Guardian and at least once so there's a lot of that shit out there and there's a lot of that shit out there right now uh, of people talking about the denazification of Ukraine and, and buying into what is a very very dangerous form of disinformation and not least because you know it erodes consensus of what is right and wrong. Somehow um, and that happens Not just on the far right as we've maybe gotten Used to in the recent years under Trump And people like that but it does happen on the far Left as well the useful idiot syndrome um, So that was certainly happening So anyway uh, Another guy with a lot of these Hot takes on Russia And Ukraine is Mr George Galloway <laughs> Mark some guy Quality
1: eh? guy yeah <laughs>
2: former leader of the Respect Party uh, a man ironically known for having a great deal of respect for people like Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin he still contributes to RT which is the state controlled propaganda service masquerading as a news channel that you can still get on some satellite providers and digital uh, providers in the UK Um, aside from tweeting on February 22nd mocking suggestions that Russia was about to invade Ukraine, Galloway struck a bet earlier last month with a Twitter account count. The bet said that if there was no invasion by July, that is, as to say, no Ukrainian soldiers were killed in action or Ukrainian territory was gained by Russia, then that user would change the profile picture to one of George Galloway and post a public apology. But if Galloway lost the bet and therefore there were Ukrainian soldiers killed and Russia did take territory, then he would have to do the same. And unfortunately for George Galloway, less than a fortnight later, Russian troops invaded Ukraine. Uh, But George Galloway's yet to acknowledge that bet, despite liking the tweet and replying deal to it when it was put to him. Um, On the back of that, if you would like to book George Galloway to appear at a party, private function, awards ceremony, etc., you can reach him through his current agent at the MS2N agency. Uh, Among their other clients, you will find a varied roster, including Gaza, Hans Blix, Kurt Angle, Tony Blair, Molly Ringwald, Duncan Ferguson (laughs) Dunk the Drunk uh, Sean Spicer Tony Hawk Katie Price Fat Mike Gavin McInnes Cookie Cunty Very very popular drag queen uh, And Mr John Craven The host of Newsround And
1: Countryfile And more That is is, is mental Imagine having Fat Mike In the same fucking agency As Gavin McInnes (laughs) (laughs) Tony Blair And Cookie Cunty (laughs) (laughs) That's insane
2: So there you go Uh, Topical Nexus folks But I'm sorry I had to get it out there Because it's I mean the internet's Been doing my head in So Tony Hawk Yep He's the most
1: wholesome man (laughs) There you go
2: (laughs) Everybody needs an agent Apparently They're not too fussy Who it is Or who else they represent
1: Well that was really great Fruit Show. Thanks for your your Great suggestion there Thoroughly enjoyed that
3: No problem i'm happy i'm happy to have introduced you to this band i mean uh one of my favorites from the eight for my formative years so you know i'm very glad if some if someone of the listeners is going to listen to that petrol emotion i mean uh, after this I'll be, I'll be extremely
1: glad and happy right. i've done my bit <laughs> yes you have you have <clears throat> christopher what are we doing next week
2: Mark, we're going to do something we've been teasing the listeners uh, with for a long time. For which actually, now that I think about it, I think you'd probably have a lot to contribute to this. We are going to do a special double-part mixtape on the phenomenon of the cover mount compilation. Whether that is a flexi-disc, a CD, a cassette, all the formats. We'll go into a wee bit of the history of it. We'll talk about the the culture of it, um, how it worked, and some of the successes and some of the failures in the past. And then we'll rip apart one particularly interesting cover mount disc. And I think oh, it's probably going to so, a feature. So
3: you mean the records that come with magazines or?
1: Uh... Yeah. Oh, ah, exactly. right. Yeah, yeah.
3: Nice. All right,
2: I
1: look forward to that. That's actually, a great Mark. idea. That's a
3: great
1: idea. I like it. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I, I've seen the compilation; it's particularly egregious. So you're <laughs> in for a fucking
2: treat. <laughs> it's it's uh, provocative. <laughs> I think is the word we'll go for. Uh, all right, Mark. Well, I'm looking forward to that. i will see you next week for that. For thanks again. We will see you Thank soon, man. I get your thinking cap on for your next excellent suggestion. Thank
1: you. Cheers, folks. Bye. Bye.